Hi folks, I'm Alan Watt and this is Cutting Through the Matrix on July the 31st, 2016. Those who've followed me for a long time know perfectly well that I really don't think much of politics at all. And I've always really thought the same since I was a, a small child. Because just watching what happens and what's promised, it never materializes what's promised. And debt always gets worse and worse, and the same establishment is always in control. And I knew early on that only one group controlled both sides, sometimes three sides, if they have an extra one thrown in. It's quite amazing to me how the understanding of humanity, again, or psychology, is so perfectly well understood. Remember, primitive aspects, again, uh, really run our lives and and how we think things should be, etc. I mean primitive, basic things. Uh, we all have this ancient tribal need for to be protected. So at one time, uh, tribes would elect a chief for a while and then uh, maybe for a year, maybe for two years, and then someone else would take over. But everyone got a say in it. And in a small tribe situation, it's easier to do because... Um, since there's just a small tribe, the, the the chief can't get an army around him for lots of relatives, and and make a dynasty and make himself a king. So uh, that's where it can, it can actually work. Real democracy works on a small basis, basically. And we have that need still, regardless of the size of the culture, nation, or tribe we live in. And it's, it's completely uh, still used. The same techniques are used as though you were still a small tribe. Uh, women w- want to be promised safety, peace, security, uh, and so on, so they can bring up children. At least that's how it used to be. And um, and so they'll vote for the party that promises them all these things. Uh, the, the socialist type system, which they which promises them all, you know, all these things basically. Uh, and so that's catered for by the one elite that rules both sides. And it's no skin off their nose, as you might say, because the elite uh, don't pay for anything at all. Uh, you pay for everything, uh, regardless of what side you think is in power at the time. So it's just your tax money, um, excess tax money. And when you really look up the amount of tax money that governments rake in, of all the different kinds of taxes that they have, but you're on everything. Every item you purchase has taxes and hidden taxes and so on, blah, blah, blah. It's just astonishing. And yet they're always broke, they claim, eh? And yet they always have money when wars break out and so on. Because, again, uh, the elite uh, have their stashes here and there of your tax money put by for projects. The elite love to have projects ongoing all the time across the world. And so they have projects where they can take over more land, more resources for the factories and all the different institutions uh, of, of systems of government which they own, you see. And it's owned. Governments are owned. And um, everything's written. They make sure that everything's written into treaties and charters and so on as they bind the whole world together in a, what they call a legal fashion. Uh, and what is a legality anyway? It's just uh, someone signing down you and, every, and every, everything in your nation um, and all the property down in some kind of treaty or other uh, without your consent, you see. But they teach you that this is quite normal. We, take, we accept a lot of things as being normal simply because they exist, you see. So the future is always planned by uh, one elite, you see. 
who control finances and uh, and resources and all of these things. So all governments are owned by them since governments must go to them to borrow money every year, even though they've got all this tax money coming in. So, I mean, the biggest business in the planet is simply all of you. Collectively, you, you are the business. You are the business, you see. You're the product too. But... um. People get riled up about politics. Now, for, for years and years now, in a lot of countries, folk were getting absolutely sick of politics. And there's nothing changed for the better. And they just stopped voting. Uh, you always found in Britain, for instance, you'd have miserable turnouts for, for voting. And until they brought in more and more, more immigrants and scared the immigrants uh, so they could get more and more Labour parties and things like that, who, who they claimed would always make sure that um, they'd be quite safe and everything else and have lots of work and etc. But even that's fallen flat today, so there's back down to lower voter turnouts. In some countries, like Australia, they had to bring in mandatory voting. You had, you had to vote or you were given a massive fine. And I think maybe the second or third time you got fined and imprisonment, something like that anyway. So they, they, they make you vote so that legally you give the ones that they select for you on, on either party the right to do what they want with you, because that's what that means. That's what that really means, you see. If they get any power, you've voted them in, and therefore you've agreed uh, to be ruled. by, the, And that means to do anything they want with you, you see. So uh, it's, it's an ancient system, initially, uh, as all legalisms, using primitive uh, techniques and so on to manage your mind through fear and all the rest of it. When you really look at it, though, um, in, in the States, I've always said this, because the States has more money and more tax base, they can put a much better show as election time for the, the public. But again, they use the techniques too of, of uh, ultimate evil versus whatever it happens to be. You see ultimate good, ultimate evil, and each each one who runs uh, always claims that they're the ultimate good, etc., etc. But they all work for the same establishment and the same boys at the top. But it's, it's a better show to make sure that more folk get all heated up over arguments and so on, and actually will go and vote. You see. So. Because again, as I say, I've never seen anything that they, they think they're voting for ever really materialise. If anything does, it's a little, it's like, it's like throwing them a little extra candy sort of thing to munch on for a little while. Uh, that's all it really is, you see. Because the elite don't care one way or another. As long as they're not paying themselves for anything and not too much of the profit of running all of you is taken out of them. Uh, their particular purse, in other words. So it's all a big show. It's all a show. And over many, many years, it's been shown to the public just how much of a show it actually is. Comedies are the greatest way to do it. Satire's fantastic. But the public don't know that the professional marketing companies, the biggest marketing companies on the planet, are actually making up all the ads, how to... To, to fool you in so many ways, not just advertising and buy these silly products and so on, uh, but but also, I mean, you want things that you don't actually want, you've never even thought about wanting before, things like that. Um, they're, 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 they're working to get you in to the voting process, mightily, mightily, mightily and heavily so. And it's quite amazing. I mean, the, the same, if you read the history of how <laughs> Woodrow Wilson and the boys got them in, and the boys who really put him in, got the U.S. into World War One, 
which really didn't want to get entangled with foreign affairs, you see. And he went in on the ticket that, that he would not take the US and he made sure they kept out of World War, the, the Great War is on the go. And, of course, once he was in, he, he went to work immediately. His bosses told him, like Mandel House, who was his boss, he, he went to work to make sure that they got into the war, you see. And they, they used, again, the biggest marketing company in New York, I think it was at the time, uh, to, to to put all the propaganda out to the general public. Bernays was involved in it, naturally, Edward Bernays. And he and some of his associates, I know his associates, wrote a book about it after World War I, boasting about how they managed to fool the whole nation into going to war, you see. Because a lot of Bernays' friends and clients ran the military-industrial complex, and that was the, the uniforms, the, the weapons, and all that kind of stuff, all stock, um, gunpowder, you name it, everything that was necessary for, for a big, big war. And they made a fortune out of it. And, of course, the idiots, the ordinary, ordinary folk, we're all idiots, you see, go off and do all the fighting for them. Uh, and you pay your little tin medals when, if you survive. And, and that makes it all better, you see. Now, years ago, I saw the repeat of an old movie about a psychopath, really. A very, a very good portrayal of, of a likable psychopath. Because they generally are very likable, the ones who go into politics uh, from nothing, and they can charm anybody at all uh, with, the, with the, 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 their ability to hypnotize anyone who comes in to ask for something or complain or whatever. They can hypnotize the people uh, so, so instantly almost. Uh, analy- they, they, they actually scan you. They can scan you. Really, a psychopath scans you. And what they do is they know your weaknesses and so on. They know how to make you happy and what to say to you and what to tell you to make you happy and so on and so on. But they mean none of it, actually. And once you're out the door, it's as though you never existed, as far as you're concerned. But they do climb the ladder. And they can be awfully good at strategy. It's, it's automatic with them to be uh, involved in strategy of how to climb and climb and climb in business, politics, or, or anything. And how to do in, basically, remove all those uh, who are in competition with them on their way up. And there's no holds barred with them. There's nothing too dirty for them to do. They'll do it. They'll do it. Or they get others to do it for them. It's even better because that's what psychopaths generally do. Anyway, the movie was called um, A Face in the Crowd. And it was, uh, I think it was Andy Griffith that was in it. But it's interesting, it cropped up again. Uh, I think I've spoken about it before, but it cropped up again. Uh, this article here by John Whitehead. And it starts off, it says, Stop drinking the Kool-Aid, America. Political fiction. Political fiction in an age of televised lies. But it doesn't matter. The folk never learn, unfortunately. But it says, uh, this is the 26th of July, 2016. And this is what was from the face in the crowd. A face in the crowd, 1957. We've got to face it. Politics have entered a new stage, the television stage. Instead of long-winded public debates, the people want capsule slogans like time for a change. Where have you heard that, you know, before? The mess in Washington. More bang for a buck. Punchlines and glamour, you see, and, and on and on it goes. And it's true. There's a whole a whole diatribe that the character goes into in the movie about what is going to work. And he, all he was doing then, is, and the guys who wrote the, the script and so on, 
all, all that was happening then was um, the relatives and different people in Hollywood uh, knew uh, relatives again in the big marketing corporations. And they knew the strategies that were getting used and had been used for a, a long time prior to 1957, and they're still being used today. It's all sensationalism, slogans and so on. Lenin said it long before. He said, we shall win by slogans, meaning conquering the world too. Little short slogans. And it comes down until you, you're, you're, you're an anti-something or you're this or you're that. You're, you're a hater. You're, you're something. If you disagree with some policy that's going on, you're always, and they'll just slam you with something. And they've already trained the public as by Pavlovian responses uh, to cower away. Oh, my God. Oh, oh. You know, <laughs> and it works awfully well, doesn't it? So this is the way of controlling the mind, controlling the mouth, and controlling thought, basically, you see. So there you are, time for a change, the mess in Washington, more bang for a buck, and punchlines and glamour, that's what the public want. And isn't it ever? The, the folk have no idea of the money that's spent not just on the big marketing corporations, but also the massive amounts of money that's dished out to TV and radio owners, generally, to push for this party or that party or whoever and so on. Big, big, big bucks. And they use nothing but sensationalism to get the folk to follow them. You see, it works awfully well. It really does. Have you ever, how many times have you heard, I promise? At election time, I promise. Huh? Where is it written anywhere that if you say I promise to the general public that you must go through with it? Where? Or else what? The only duty you have is to vote them in, and once they're in, they can do whatever they want, which of course they, they actually don't. They only do what they're told, but not by you. It says, it's a heavily scripted, uh, tightly choreographed, star-studied, ratings-driven, mass-marketed, costly exercise in how to sell a product. In this case, a presidential candidate to dazzled consumers who will choose image over substance almost every time. This year's presidential election, much like every other election in recent years, is what historian Daniel Burston referred to as a pseudo-event, manufactured, contrived, confected, and devoid of any intrinsic value, save the value of being advertised. Because they tell you nothing, really. It's the end result of a culture that's moving away from substance towards sensationalism in an era of mass media. Well, that's to say it's been going on for an awful long time. Noam Chomsky observed, it's important to bear in mind that political campaigns are designed by the same people who sell toothpaste and cars. That's what I've already said, basically. And give you movies, too. That's all fantasy, remember. In other words, we're being sold a carefully crafted product by a, a moneyed elite who are masters in the art of making the public believe that they need exactly what is being sold to them. Whether it's the latest high-tech gadget, the hottest toy, or the most charismatic politician. Tune to a political convention and you'll find yourself being sucked into an alternate reality so glossy, star-studied, emotionally charged and entertaining as to make you forget that you live in a police state. The elaborate stage show, the costumes, the actors, and don't they ever, eh? 
the US, I mean, I mean, I, I this is what I hear because I don't, I don't have a TV to watch. You see, I haven't watched it for years and years and years, and I won't do it either. But I know that they all bring on the the, the boob babes that, that are on TV and, and are, are known. Anybody who's known uh, to to the to the general public, at least visually, and they've got all the accoutrements, you know, for for news and so on that they demand today, because that's what you've been given by the ones who control your minds. Uh, they bring them on, and you all fall for it. It's just astonishing. This says they bring on the, the costumes, the actors, the screenplay, the lighting, the music, the drama, all carefully calibrated to appeal to the public's need for bread and circuses, diversion and entertainment, and pomp and circumstance. Politics is a reality show. America's favorite form of entertainment is ever, eh? Dominated by money and profit, imagery and spin, hype and personality, and guaranteed to ensure that nothing in the way of real truth reaches the populace. After all, who cares about police shootings, drone killings, SWAT team raids, asset forfeiture schemes, private prisons, school-to-prison pipelines, uh, over-criminalization, censorship, or any of the other evils that plague our nation when you can listen to the croonings of Paul Simon, because they play stuff, along with, uh, I guess this has been on with one of the candidates or whatever, along with Sarah Silverman, uh, and get misty-eyed over the First Lady's uh, vision of progress in America. (laughs) But make no mistake, Americans only think they're choosing the next president. In truth, however, they're engaging in the illusion of participation, culminating in the reassurance ritual of voting. It's just another blue pill, a manufactured reality conjured up by the Matrix in order to keep the populace compliant and convinced that their vote counts and that they still have some influence over the political process. So, it says the nation is drowning in debt, crippled by a slowing economy, overrun by militarized police, swarming with surveillance, besieged by endless wars, and a military-industrial complex intent on starting new ones, new wars, and riddled with corrupt politicians at every level of government. All the while we are arguing over which corporate puppet will be given the honor of stealing our money, invading our privacy, abusing our trust, undermining our freedoms, and shackling us with debt and misery for years to come. Nothing taking place on Election Day will alleviate the suffering of the American people. The government, as we have come to know it, corrupt, bloated, and controlled by big money corporations, lobbyists, and special interest groups, will remain unchanged. And we, the people, overtaxed, overpoliced, overburdened by big government, underrepresented by those who should speak for us, and blissfully ignorant of the prison walls closing in on us, will continue to trudge along a path of misery. With roughly 22 lobbyists per congressman, <laughs> isn't that something, me? <laughs> Corporate greed will continue to call the shots the nation's capital. It's just like the EU parliament over there, too, as well as with 12... Hundred, you know, 1,200 uh, lobbying groups housed around the Parliament building in, in Brussels. But here it's the States, it's with roughly 22 lobbyists per congressman. Corporate greed will continue to call the shots in the nation's capital, whereas elected representatives will grow richer and the people poorer. And elections will continue to be driven by war chests and corporate benefactors rather than such 
values is honesty, integrity, and public service. That's what a joke, public service, eh? I mean, the servants are getting thousands of times more per, per, for their wage than you. <laughs> Just consider, it's estimated that more than $5 billion will be spent on the elections this year. You know, a dime of that money will actually help the average American in their day-to-day struggles to just get by. And the military-industrial complex will continue to bleed as dry. Since 2001, Americans have spent $10.5 million every hour for numerous foreign military occupations. That's your tab, you see. Every hour, $10.5 million since 2001. uh, including the Iraq and uh, Afghanistan. There's also the $2.2 million spent every hour on maintaining the U.S.'s nuclear stockpile and the $35,000 spent every hour to produce and maintain our collection of Tomahawk missiles. And then there's the money that government exports to other countries to support their arsenals at the cost of $1.61 million every hour for the American taxpayers. Then again, when faced with the grim, seemingly hopeless reality of the American police state, it's understandable why Americans might opt for escapism. Humankind cannot bear too much reality, T.S. Eliot once said. Perhaps that is one reason we are so drawn to the unreality of the American political experience. It is spectacle and fiction and farce all rolled up into one glossy dose of escapism. Frankly, escapism or not, Americans should be mad as hell. Many of our politicians live like kings, chaffered around in limousines, flying in private jets and eating gourmet meals, all paid for by the American taxpayer. They're far removed from those they represent. Such a luxurious lifestyle makes it difficult to identify with the little guy, the roofers, plumbers, and blue-collar workers who live from paycheck to paycheck and keep the country running with their hard-earned dollars and the sweat at their brows. Conveniently, politicians only seem to remember the constituents in the months leading up to an election. Isn't that true? Eh? Everywhere in the world, actually. And yet we, the people, continue to take the abuse, the neglect, the corruption, and the lies. We make excuses for the shoddy treatment. We, we cover up for them when they cheat on us. And we keep hoping that if we just stick with them long enough, eventually, they'll treat us right. People get the government they deserve. And no matter who wins the presidential election come November, it's a sure bet that the losers will be the American people. And as a political science professor, Gene Sharp notes in starker terms, dictators are not in the business of allowing elections that could remove them from their thrones. I've said that over and over for my whole life, I think. As I make clear in my book, Battlefield America, the war on the American people, the establishment, the shadow government and its corporate partners that really run this show, pull the strings and dictate the policies no matter who occupies the Oval Office are not going to allow anyone to take office who will unravel their power structures. Those who have attempted to do so in the past have been effectively put out of commission. So what's the solution to this blatant display of imperial elitism disguising itself as a populist exercise in representative government? Stop playing the game. Stop supporting the system. Stop defending the insanity. Just stop. Washington thrives on money, so stop giving them your money. Stop throwing your hard-earned dollars away on politicians and super PACs 
who view you as nothing more than a means to an end. There are countless worthy grassroots organizations and non-profits working in your community to address the real needs, like injustice, poverty, and homelessness. Actually, there's a whole racket there, too. Most of the stuff out there is a racket, folks, as you well know. Unfortunately, so so this this author says support them and you'll see change you can really believe in. (laughs) Well, yeah, right. Politicians depend on votes, so stop giving them your vote unless you have a a proven track record of listening to their constituents, or they have a track record, I guess, uh, abiding by their wishes and working hard to earn and keep their trust. Stop buying into the lie that your vote matters, your vote doesn't elect a president, despite the fact there are 218 million eligible voters in the, this country, that's the US, only half of whom actually vote. It's electoral college made up of 538 individuals handpicked by the candidates' respective parties that actually selects the next president. That's, that's true too, isn't it, eh? The only thing you're accomplishing by taking part in the reassurance ritual of voting is sustaining the illusion that we have a democratic republic. What we have is a dictatorship, or as political scientists Martin Gillens and Benjamin Page more accurately term it, we are suffering from an economic elite domination. A healthy representative government is hard work. It takes a citizenry that is informed about the issues, educated about how the government operates, and willing to make the sacrifices necessary to stay involved, where that means forgoing Monday night football in order to attend a city council meeting or risking arrest by picketing in front of a politician's office. Uh, Personally, I think we're way beyond all that. It takes a citizenry willing to do more than grouse and complain. We must act and act responsibly, keeping in mind that the duties of citizenship extend beyond the acts of voting. Well, you know what's wrong with the system. You know, those who run the money are totally corrupt. It's a big, giant trick. It's a con. And so on and so on and so on. You know the problems. So you ain't going to get anybody in because you give them a little vote and, and you're going to tear up certain things and start anew in a certain areas. It's just it's not going to happen. And it goes on to say here, most of all, it takes a citizenry that cares enough to get mad and active, as Howard Beale declares in the 1976 film Network. Where he says, I want you to get up right now, sit up, go to your windows, open them and stick your head out and yell, I'm as mad as hell and I'm not going to take this anymore. Things have got to change, but first you've got to get mad. You've got to say, I'm as mad as hell and I'm not going to take this anymore. Then we'll figure out what to do about the depression and inflation and the oil crisis. But first get up out of your chairs, open the window, stick your head out and yell and say, say it. So it would take an awful lot to, to, to because the system is so corrupt. But you see, it was set up to be this way. From the very beginning, I really think so. I really do think so. And Britain's always been that way too. You understand, people who go into politics, they'll make it quite known to, to their elite brothers, you see, uh, that they're, they're willing to do anything to, to fool the public, to get on themselves personally, to become the right honourable blah, 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 whatever it happens to be. They want to be a, a, get up into a, a higher peer group, to be part of a higher peer group 
and to be accepted and acknowledged, you know. And being respectable to them it means, yeah, you are willing to completely lie to the general public on the elite and ask you to do so. You might get a knighthood down the road, you see. So uh, the U.S. is very much the same, the way it was set up. Britain has uh, the House of Parliament for elected politicians, and then they have their, their, their House of Lords. Uh, the U.S. has uh, their, their house as well. Then they have the Congress. Then they have the um, the, the Senate as well. It's the same thing, really. You see. So everything's much the same. But if you think that you really have a say in anything, forget it. We don't, you don't even know what's going on most of the time, and they're not going to tell you. That's really what they refer to. They're, they're going to tell you a lot of nonsense. There's a massive machine out there to churn out information or disinformation. A massive machine. Uh, and you'll get your legitimate ones, which are still con, it's big cons, and the ones that are supposedly fighting them, which are cons as well. So you really are living in an illusion, an absolute illusion. And they give you all the problems to consider, uh, which have nothing to do with, with most things, actually. Uh, and the public, unfortunately, do. Like, especially in the U.S., it's more easy to see in the U.S. Uh, they like a good show. They like the clowns. They like the, the boob babes from TV. Uh, and, you know, a lot of has-been singers, or whatever it happens to be. Um, they like that kind of thing. To get, I mean, they'd rather follow... Uh, some well-known actor and some big long TV drama uh, they dare follow that person really because they'll fall in love with the character they portray in the drama series or whatever that's how simple it is isn't it? really is that simple so you know and, and you cannot you cannot remember appeal to intellects during these things. It's nothing to do with intellect. It's all to do with subconscious emotions and drives and so on that, that the marketers tap into to manipulate you. And simplistic little promises like Bernie Sanders, you know, free education for everybody up through university. Well, hey, who's going to pay for it? What, what in America has ever, ever been free? Hmm? What? What's that? What's ever been free? What's ever been free in this system? which runs the whole world, anywhere in the world, has been free. Hmm? And it doesn't exist. Now, I've mentioned color revolutions over many years, actually, because that is part of what's called soft power that uh, sometimes the geopoliticians refer to in the Council on Foreign Relations. They've given talks about using it years ago. I read them on the air years ago. And also... Um, of course, the Trilateral Commission. They're, they're both private clubs, but the Trilaterals are actually a section, a higher section of the CFR, a specialised section. But anyway, it says uh, in this article here, this other one, uh, are colour revolutions a new form of war? And it says the most recent example of uh, little tricks and cons and so on, the most recent example occurred at the Moscow Conference on International Security at which members of Russia's general staff announced the appearance of a new form of warfare. When the conference agenda was initially set, the plan was to focus on regional security with an emphasis on the problem that would inevitably arise when international coalition forces withdrew from Afghanistan. 
prior to the Ukrainian crisis, the most pressing problem was the need for Russia and the West to work together to ensure at least a degree of stability in Central Asia. However, the Kremlin clearly issued orders that radically changed the focus of the forum. In his opening address before the conference, President Vladimir Putin emphasized that so-called color revolutions are now the main threat to peace. Senior Defense Ministry officials developed that that argument during their subsequent uh, remarks. According to them, Western intelligence agencies conspire to foment color revolutions around the world, which they do as soft power. I've given talks on it uh, from, again, the CFR zone, uh, people who are strategists, you see. that uh, Again, the job of the CFR is to advise politicians what policies to take and so on. In other words, private organi- a private organization runs the U.S., really, you know. As it turns out, the Moscow considers color revolutions a new type of warfare. And it says uh, it's, it's, uh, it's different from the old kinds of rules of warcraft. General Staff Head Valery uh, Gerasimov and Main Operations uh, Directorate Head Vladimir uh, Varudnitsky expanded further on that brilliant idea. In fact, it appears that the primary function of the General Staff is to translate the policies of senior leaders into the language of military concepts. General Zardnitsky did not disappoint. He painted a frightening picture of this new type of warfare, saying, first the countries organizing the overthrow of the undesirable government use their military potential to apply overt pressure with the goal of preventing that state from using its security forces to restore law and order, Zardnitsky said. Then as the opposition launches military operations against government forces, the foreign states provide military and economic aid to the rebels. After that, the coalition of countries can carry out military operations to defeat the government forces and assist the armed opposition forces to seize power. Interestingly, the Kremlin does not even consider the possibility that people living under authoritarian rule might simply get fed up with their leaders and rebel without outside provocation or assistance. According to Russia's generals, all popular uprisings are the result of foreign intervention, and yet they offered no evidence in support of that claim. You, you will find that, actually, in most countries, it's been the CIA all along, long before you heard the term colour revolution. Oh, and they use different um, uh, charitable agencies often, um, different aid, like American aid and all this kind of thing, uh, to, to go over and send youngsters or university-age folk over and be given base tr- basic training and to, to mix with other university uh, or people their own age, basically in other countries, target countries, and to try and stir up their their their, their angst to do with the, those who rule their country or run the system and so on to get an overthrow. It can take time, naturally, to get a country so fed up they'll have little rebellions and all the rest of it. But that's what they've been doing for years, absolute years. And now it's called Color Revolution. So. And it says... Um, Otherwise, they would have had difficulty explaining why, for example, Washington would have schemed to overthrow former Egyptian President Hosni Mubarak, whose regime had been loyal to the U.S. The general also made the curious argument that color revolutions are just another form of military action. He said it's impossible not to notice that all of the actions of the armed rebel groups 
The tactical airstrikes and missile strikes using precision weapons were all highly organized, coordinated and linked in terms of their goals, objectives, timing and targets. He conveniently overlooked the fact that Libya was the only case where Western countries conducted military operations in support of an armed opposition. And yet there's no evidence that Libya's armed opposition were commanded by Western military headquarters. Moscow's main goal is to use smoke and mirrors to prove that colour revolutions are really a form of disguised aggression that uses new technology to destroy undesirable governments and remove them from the political arena. It's, it's quite interesting. I find these these um, these articles and the counters to them too um, are all part of intelligence agencies in all countries actually, and uh, <laughs> and they really do uh, put some interesting information out. Uh, and really, can it, you wonder if the, any of these people who are involved in these in any side whatsoever could ever really tell the truth about anything? Uh, really, eh? Don't you wonder about that? I remember reading uh, years ago and then seeing a documentary on the CIA's role in fomenting revolutions across the world. And it went way back, way back to, I I think it was Zambia in Africa uh, that had just elected uh, a a president or prime minister and... um, this president really wanted to better the the nation, this this, this nation of Zambia, uh, which was fairly prosperous compared to most countries in Africa at that time, and um, and they, their biggest um, income, I think, at that time in Zambia, uh, at least one of the biggest companies that was stationed there was an American company uh, that uh, wanted that their bauxite there for aluminum. That's where they make the. The, the aluminum from and uh, they were afraid at one point that this guy's great ideas and all but this president he might want to, to nationalize the, the nation and then seize all corporations properties and so on and plant you know factories and all the rest of it mines you name it and uh, and they would lose the control so the, the 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 guy the guy who was the president of this corporation based in the u.s for bauxite approached the cia and uh, told him about his little problems, and then the CIA went to work to get an overthrow of this particular president, which they did successfully, of course. But and they boasted about it. Some of the guys involved in the documentary boasted about it, and and they were way up there in the CIA at the time. So it's, there's nothing new in this getting into countries and overthrowing them, so that you can either you can get or maintain um, resources which they have. And again, if you go a step further, if they won't give in to you and let you just have the resources, uh, they'll they'll do a, a military campaign against you, like they did across the Middle East and grabbed all their oil and minerals and all the rest of it. It's the same thing, you see. So the soft power, and then there's 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 the hard power, which is bloody, you see. It's quite amazing to me how. You know, as I see, you'll never get just basic truth on any particular one article coming out. There's always a reason for it being out in the first place. But now I'm going to put up tonight to uh, the Center for Strategic and International Studies. And uh, it, it says it's an influential American think tank based in Washington, D.C. in the United States. 
and the Centre conducts policy studies and strategic analysis of political, economic and security issues throughout the world, with a specific focus on issues concerning international relations, trade, technology, finance, energy and geo-strategy. And it says, uh, in the University of Pennsylvania's 2013 Global Go to Think Tanks reports, CSIS is ranked the number one think tank in the world for security and international affairs, and was also ranked as the fourth best overall think tank in the world. And so they basically are Washington's think tank. Again, a private thing, you see. And I've no doubt most of the members will belong to the Council on Foreign Relations. And they helped it to advise, actually they probably do, or just advise all the politicians who don't know much at all about what, the, the, real working, the real workings of the world. And, and this, this is how politicians are advised by these particular kind of groups. And they go on to, to, to say that uh, who their past um, speakers there, who, who come in to speak there too. The United Nations is heavily involved, uh, Ban Ki-moon, uh, the National Security Advisor Tom Donnellan uh, was there too at one time. The centre also conducts the CSIS Scheifer School of Dialogues, a series of discussions hosted by Bob Scheifer, or Schaefer at CBS News, in addition to the Global Security Forum. And then they had uh, keynote addresses by Defence Department officials, including the current Secretary of Defence, uh, Chuck Hale. That was back then, of course. And, um, and then they moved from K Street which was its headquarters to a new location in Rhode Island Avenue in Washington, D.C. The new building cost $100 million to build. I'm sure the taxpayer would somehow end up paying that one way or another through various means. And we'll have a studio for media interviews as well as room to host conferences, events, lectures, and discussions. And uh, the building is located in Washington, D.C.'s DuPont Circle, Neighborhood and will earn LEED platinum certification. Ooh, ooh. Yep. So there you go. And then also, I also want to put up um, this this one here. Institutes for Strategic Studies and Predictions. It's quite interesting. It says the Institute for Strategic Studies and Predictions is a division of experts at People's Friendship University of Russia which delivers analytical studies on relevant issues in the area of international relations, Russia's foreign and domestic policies, economy and security. Their mission is to facilitate the consolidation of Russia's international position, create a positive image of the country abroad, promote socio-economic development of Russia through successful implementation of scientific research, expert support to public and local authorities as well as to the private sector facilitation of dialogue between businesses and government, uh, development of science, education and culture. And so you a whole bunch of experts and so on involved in this one too. And it's basically Russian. Um, each study of the Institute is based on a comprehensive approach to, uh, to task accomplishment, guarantees quantitative results adequate to the real needs of government and corporate sector. I'll put this one up tonight too to show you some other countries' techniques. You'll find all countries use the same techniques, by the way. If it works, 
and it's efficient. It's definitely adopted by other countries, you see. that's So it's worthwhile reading other countries' ones as well. Don't think that anything that really works on the general public and can change the minds of the public anywhere in the world are not used by uh, all your countries. Of course they are. Of course they are. There's no doubt about it. And I'm going to put up tonight, too, a PDF on by... Uh, by basically the think tank in, in Russia to do with color revolutions and what they say about them. Russia and the color revolution. A Russian military view of a world destabilized by the U.S. and the West. You see. Um, it didn't have to be this way, you understand. When Russia supposed to supposedly fell, if they'd allowed... You understand, it, was, it, was, it wasn't it was a sudden thing as it was presented to the general public. They got one morning and says, oh, well, let's just, let's just drop everything today and see what happens. Well, it didn't happen like that. That's what it was, It's always been given to the public that way. And it didn't happen that way at all. The, th- the thing is, Russia was already ruled with a system inside of it which again was awfully similar to the West. <laughs> and um, I remember watching a documentary of how the, 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 oh, the simplistic story of what they said about how the U.S. Treasury sent members over to suddenly implement um, democracy and, and the financial system of the West into Russia, like suddenly, right? And so it had all been pre-thought out by these people who who uh, were friends of Alan Greenspan and so on. They all worked together, so I think. They went over there, and the idea was that every nationalized system which they had in Russia, in other words, the taxpayers technically owned them all, would be privatized, like overnight. And they would give each citizen in Russia shares, little paper shares, and all these big national corporations. Well, of course, the corruption between the ones that were sent over to help them it was already pre-planned. Most of the shares ended up in, the, in, the, in a few of the, the top mafia's hands in Russia. And these were not, they weren't Italian mafia, but they called mafia. And, um, and eventually, and it was all this bickering and so on, and even internal warfare over which, which group was going to end up holding the power and holding all the resources of Russia. Uh, this little handful of people. Then Putin was going in eventually to try and restore that to an extent um, and, and fix it because it was just so blatant even to people in the rest of the world uh, that, that this, this handful, basically, of, uh, of people end up owning all the resources of, of, of Russia through a con game, you see. Now, if, if, if they just left it that way in Russia till these guys ruled the country, there would be no problems with Russia today, as far as the U.S. would be concerned, you see. The elite of America wanted that to happen in Russia, uh, for this group to be in, in power and own everything, much like they do in the States. So, uh, unfortunately for them, as they put Putin got in eventually and started imprisoning a lot of them, and, um, and that, that really uh, annoyed a lot of them in the West. A long story too, but that's that's it. Very brief and, and, and really done sort of thing. So I'm putting up Russia and the color revolution. I say the PDF version, 
the world destabilized by the U.S. and the West. It's quite interesting. And um, it says the British strategist Little Hart stressed the needs to, or the need to understand rival views of grand strategy and military developments, or the other side of the hill. A range of Russian and Belarusian military and civil experts presented a very different view of global security and the forces behind it at the Russian Ministry of Defense's third Moscow conference on international security on May 2014. So um, it's quite interesting, as I say, to to see how other folk are analyzing it in, in other countries. And then this other one is also from Russia. 2015, and it's to do with hybrid wars. Awfully good uh, and very detailed, too. It's from the the project of the Institute for Strategic Studies and Predictions, as I've mentioned already. But this is actually the PDF with uh, uh, the indirect adaptive approach to regime change across the world and so on. It's quite interesting for those that want to really read through stuff like that. Most folk don't, as I say, they're into uh, hype and drama and and uh, personality cults, which are fostered by <laughs> the, the Hollywood boys who run a good part of of the U.S.'s uh, entertainment industry. And um, but it's, it's worth reading how how different techniques are used on the public. And it's, what's really amazing to me, you see, you really cannot, you, you really, really cannot make a person wake up sort of thing. Waking up is, is something they must start themselves. They must say, this is kind of wrong. What could it be that's causing it? And do the search for themselves. You can't just go in and wake people up. Because they've all been conditioned from birth to fall into the, the, the prearranged traps, the Pavlovian responses, when certain topics or words or whatever are mentioned, and they go right into it, you see. So even you can sit and educate them for years, and then you, you suddenly put them in, in front to a, of a radio or a television, and, and um, they go straight back into the argument at, at, at the election time, because it's already conditioned into them. It seems so real. The tempers go up, the emotions go up, and they're designed in such a way as to draw you in, thinking you're all part of it, you see? And it works awfully well. So uh, some of the chapters in this, this particular PDF is the Color Revolution Field Manual, Notable Color Revolution Practitioners. Uh, it gives you what is unconventional warfare. History and Advantages, the Rise of Non-State Actors, and Special Forces. Unconventional Warfare Strategy, the Five Rings, that's quite a good one like that. It's kind of like the Lord of the Rings, eh? The Indirect Approach and the OODA Loop, O-O-D-A Loop. Network War and Swarming, Chaos Theory, the Unconventional Warfare Field Manual, Preparing for the Unconventional War, Waging the Unconventional War, Unconventional War in Ukraine and chapter conclusion. And it goes on to chapter four with more um, breakdowns inside of it. Geopolitical relationships, the field manuals, uh, shared strategies, side-by-side comparisons of, say, the two main powers that are, appear to the world. You know, that's how it appears to you. Um, and, and so it's really quite long, actually. Very long, actually. And you'll really understand it. Um, 
even some of the quotes. You always hear folk who are reading it uh, in these think tanks and their followers talking about um, Sung. Su, you know, Sun Tzu was the, the ancient Chinese military strategist, and his quotes and how he do things and how to how to try and uh, conquer enemies without having direct on attacks with them, and so on. But it says over two thousand years ago, the ancient Chinese military strategist Sun Tzu realized that indirect warfare is one of the most efficient ways of fighting an enemy. It allows an opponent to defeat their adversary without directly engaging them, thereby saving themselves the resources that would have been that they have to have, to have used to be expanded in a, a direct confrontation. Attacking an enemy indirectly can also bog them down and, and put them on the defensive, thereby making them vulnerable to other forms of attack. It also carries with it a certain opportunity to co- cost for the defending side. Since the time and resources that they spend in dealing with the indirect attack could potentially have been put to better use elsewhere. Besides the tactical advantages, there are also strategic ones as well. There may be certain constraints, such as alliances, military parity, etc., that prevent one entity from directly launching hostilities against another. In this case, indirect warfare is the only option to destabilize the other. So then into the current day of, of massive weapon like we have today, so-called weapons of mass destruction and so on, and how this is getting more and more popular, this whole technique of indirect warfare. Now remember, this, these forms of indirect warfare are used in all the populations by their own governments as well. The propaganda wars are one. Never tell the general population the truth about anything is a maxim, basically. Never forget that. Never ever forget that. So you'll see techniques used supposedly on other um, powers or nations um, to stop them from uh, becoming dominant. But remember too, that's also used in all of you, all the time. All the time. Really. And it works awfully, awfully well. Look at the mess of today's society. Look at the mess that people are in. I I heard... (laughs) Recently, about all the accidents we are having with this ridiculous uh, weaponized game with the pixel rates and so on are all tuned to alter the, the brain waves and yada yada yada. Napoki, a man, um, uh, one I think they call her or something, I don't know what it's called. But anyway, um, it's very addictive. And two hikers had walked off a cliff edge on a hike because they were staring at the darn phones rather than what was ahead of them. <laughs> so it really, it really makes you wonder. Eh? It really does make you wonder. Hmm? I guess that's the ultimate game, eh? He promises to kill you at the end. But uh, but really, you know, and folk too, there was some other guy caught driving his car erratically, or his truck, and then when he stopped by the police, he says that he forgot he was driving. He was still playing the game. See, these things were developed, remember, even the, the earlier po- uh, Pokemon uh, series games were developed by the military-industrial complex. I mean, they even showed cartoons in Japan initially, and thousands of children had seizures just by watching this, this thing with the advanced uh, um, uh, technology, high pixel, all, all these things that affect the brain, you see. In old TVs, it was, it was literally the, the, the flicker rate, which the eye generally didn't see. But you could alter that in a bit here and there, alter a few colours, and bingo, seizures were becoming commonplace. That's why it was actually banned. Those cartoons were banned for that reason in Britain, and the articles are out there yet today. But 
but again, the, the today the Pentagon uh, gave out declassified stuff on the pixel combinations they could use on, on the screen. Your your brain actually picks them up, and it can affect how your brain is operating. It's very effective, very efficient, in fact. But you're not conscious it's even happening. And you go and vote. You go and vote for people who won't talk about any of this stuff. <laughs> Never mind the aerial spraying. By the, the way, today the aerial spraying is incredible. I saw a new type again, another new type today. And a new kind of plane doing it as well, a bit lower. But it really it was amazing to watch this stuff um, uh, create a, a horizon, horizon trail. Uh, they stayed there for at least three hours. I couldn't wait around anymore, but at least three hours, and it was still there, and it was merging awfully well in some parts with clouds on either side, which were also different to uh, the very white type of chemtrails, uh, side by side with the ultra pale blue ones, which trap the heat. So this is normal now, of course, normal um, weather control. And that's the world you live in. And you vote. You vote for what? What do you vote for? The personality cults. For the saviors that promise you everything. Hmm. Perpetual children. Well, they promised, you know. <laughs> ah, dearie. And then once it's all over, things go on just the same way. The country still rack up more debts. Um, those at the top continue to destroy what's left here, countries uh, across the planet, and um, lots of wars and all the rest of it. Sad, isn't it? You know, you keep doing the same thing, expecting a different result as classed as insanity. What does that tell you? Anyway, from Hamish, myself, Ontario, Canada, it's good night to me. Your God, your God's go with you. Mm-hmm.